What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Inman, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm pretty excited for this show today. I'm nerding out a little bit of a fanboy here of today's guest. I read his book cover to cover. It changed the way that I actually end up forecasting our business here at Financial Residency, as well as our planning practice the internal piece of the business at Physician Wall Services. My guest today is Mike McCallitz, author of the Profit First book. And even if you don't own a business, you will benefit from hearing Mike talk about the way he views business and profit and how we should be looking at our finances. Before we hit today's show, let's hear from today's sponsor, which is Resolve, a physician contract review company. At Resolve, they believe that knowledge is power for physicians, and that power gives you the control over your financial future. Resolve believes that by mining, analyzing, and synthesizing data, they can provide you with the information and insight that empowers you to diagnose the health of your career, fully understand your worth, and maximize your full potential. As a company founded by a doctor for doctors, Resolve's focus is on the well-being of those whose purpose in life is to care for the well-being of others. To have this incredible company review your employment contract, find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve. That's R-E-S-O-L-V-E. And the link is also in the description of this show. All right, without further ado, let's bring on Mike Michalowicz, author of Profit First. Really, really pumped to get him on the show. So let's head in and talk with Mike. What's up, Mike? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Brian, it is a joy to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I'm a huge fan of your book. I've mentioned it on the show, and I know I just talked about it in the intro here, about how we're actually using Profit First System in our own financial planning business. Honestly, I'd even use it in my own personal finances. I was hoping that you could start us off with why and how you created Profit First, what it is, and then I want to dig deeper on how it helps physicians with their own finances. Sure. I love to share. I created it because I desperately needed a system. What I was doing, and I believe almost all entrepreneurs do, I was doing what's called bank balance accounting, meaning my accountant was telling me, log into your QuickBooks or whatever, extract out the P&L, tie that into a cash flow statement, read the balance sheet, run the metrics. I actually don't even really know what I'm talking about. Like, that stuff was so overwhelming. So I used a shortcut, which was log into my bank account on my phone. And if there's money in there, I can spend it. And if not, you know, I better sell something quick. It was a real simple system. But the problem was, I never had any money left. I was surviving check by check. There was subsequently a study that's come out. Uh, U.S. Bank facilitated it. Uh, it was based out of the U.S. It went international. But basically what U.S. Bank determined was that of the 30 million small businesses, and a small business is defined by a company that does $25 million in annual revenue or less. Of the 30 million businesses that exist, 83% are surviving check by check. 83% don't have enough money in that checking account to cover payroll next week or rent or let alone the owner of the business, the physician to pay themselves. So this is constant check to check survival. I found so confusing was that most of us start our businesses in part for personal freedom to do the work we love to do what we want to do when we want to do it, but also financial freedom. Like we start our business, so we don't have to worry about bills. Sadly, most of us are panicked about paying the bills under constant stress. So how come we want something yet no one's achieving it? And I thought there was first something wrong with us. There was something like missing in our mind or something. That made no sense. And then I saw it right in front of me. It was hiding in plain sight. It was this formula that all businesses are run off of. Sales minus expenses equals profit. 
problem with that formula, even though it makes logical sense, you must have the revenue that comes in, you subtract the expenses you incur, what's left over is profit. That doesn't make behavioral sense. We're behavioral beasts, us humans. So for us, what comes first gets prioritized and what comes last gets delayed. In the formula of sales minus expense equals profit, we're told profit comes last. We actually call it our bottom line or year end. It means we don't consider it until a year from now. And when it doesn't happen, we're like, oh, maybe next year. It never happens. So the new formula that I teach in Profit First is sales minus profit equals expenses. So you are truly taking your profit first. Sales comes into your business. You immediately take a predetermined percentage of that money as profit, hide it away from your business. And then your business tells you what's left over. And that's what you run your business off of. So that's the simple version of the system. By taking your profit first, you're reverse engineering profit. If you want a 20% profit, take 20%. And your business will tell you what you must do to achieve that number. And just to put a bow on this, I'd started myself on this system 13 or 14 years ago now. Not because I wanted to. I, I had to. Like, I was desperate. My business was not surviving. And uh, it's been a life changer for me. I've had 48 or 49 consecutive quarters of profit distributions, and it's only growing. And my business has actually grown faster and healthier because of this. For those listening that maybe don't have their own business, what we're describing here, which is sales minus profit equals expenses, it's when we talk about when you hit outside of training and now all of a sudden you're making really good money and you're like, more money, more problems, right? I can spend all that money. I've been <laughs> yeah. delayed gratification in the personal finance sense. When I talk about paying yourself first, it's the same thing that Mike is talking about with profit first from a business standpoint. I want to make sure that those that of are course. not running a business, but still can think of their own personal finances like a business. So instead of saying sales minus profit equals expenses, you can say income minus savings equals life expenses. It's the exact same principle. Here's the thing. We are all victims, I'm doing air quotes around that, but victims of Parkinson's law. Parkinson was a behavioral theorist from the 1950s. And basically what he explained is that it's human nature that as a resource expands in its availability, we expand our consumption of that resource. I like chocolate chip cookies. You put one cookie in front of me, I'll eat the one cookie. You put 15 in front of me, I won't limit myself to one. I'll try to choke down 15. For me, it's not choking down. I'll gorge on it. But the same thing is with money. If we're making, say, $50,000 a year, we find a way to live a lifestyle with 50000 But the day our income bumps up to 300000 whatever the number is, all of a sudden, our expenses increase the exact same rate. And therefore, there's no gap between our income and expenses. We are still living check by check. The survival mechanism, the stress we still experience is still heightened. Yeah, we maybe have a nicer, more expensive car and a bigger house, but the panic is still there. There's no runway for us. So in our personal lives or in our business, when we start extracting profit or savings first and hide it away, it starts giving our business and our lives runway. It actually controls that stress. Plus, then we start living off what's truly available. The gross number is not what's available. That's the vanity number. We got to brag I'm making $300,000 a year. But the living number may actually be $200,000 or $150,000. And the rest is for savings. There's other liabilities like taxes. So the profit first system, we take our taxes out first too. You're always going to get hit by taxes. And we start living in what's truly available while building that wealth behind the scene. So let's talk about maybe the multiple accounts that Profit First has. Yeah. And then I'll relay this as we're talking back to the personal finance side as we're going. Talk through those. Love it. So in a business, I found there's five key functions. So I call this the foundational five accounts. By the way, I suggest saying these up at your bank. Now there's alternative mechanisms. We were talking off the air about YNAP. 
But I really suggest saying these at the bank if you do bank balance accounting. I mean, if you log into your bank account to see how much money's there, we must intercept that path. We're going to look there and carve up this money into different accounts with names for its intended use. So we know before we spend it, what the money's intended for. Here's the five foundational accounts. The one income. Income is every time you make a sale, it's money coming in to your business. The income account, I call it the cash turkey. It's like a serving tray of turkey. At Thanksgiving, you don't just like put the turkey down the table and say, everyone fight for it, grab your knife and fork, let's go all out brawl. You carve the turkey so everyone can get an apportionment at their table spot. Well, in our business, when income comes in, we're going to carve it up to the remaining account. So every part of their business gets fed. The next account, so income's the first. Next account's profit. We already talked about this. Profit is an allocation of money and a reward for a business owner for doing something that's pretty miraculous, starting or running a business. It is really scary. And only about 7% of the world population will ever invest in or start a business. So this is a reward for taking that risk of being a provider for our economy. Profit comes out, I would suggest quarterly. That's how almost every implementer of Profit First does it. So every 90 days, you're taking that profit out as a thank you for starting a business or investing in it. The next count is called owner's compensation. It's the third account. And what it does is it pays you the salary for the work you do. Basically, if you had to replace yourself, what do you have to pay that person? Whatever that physician would get, whatever that person that replaces you gets, that's the salary you should be getting because you're doing that work. It's different than profit. Profit is a thank you for starting and investing in a business. Owner's compensation is the pay for operating the business as an owner. The next count is called tax. Yes, your business can and should pay your personal taxes regards to the formation of your business. So it gets technical, but you could have an S corp or C corp or LLC or sole proprietorship. It doesn't matter. The business can always pay the taxes. Now, sometimes it pays it direct, like in a case of an LLC. Other times it does a reimbursement distribution like it does in an S corp or C corp. But the business will reserve the taxes for the person responsible, the owners, and then pay those taxes directly or indirectly. And the last and final count is OPEX. It stands for operating expenses. This is to operate the business. And how the system works is, say $1,000 comes in, as we carve up that cash turkey in the income account, we don't have $1,000 to operate the business. That's why I used to think. 200 bucks may go to profit. $300 may go to owner's comp. I may reserve another 200 for taxes. So now $700 has been carved up already. That leaves 300 for operating expenses. I don't have $1,000 to spend on running this business. I have $300. And that's the wake-up call. That's what you truly have to spend. Because if you want to be profitable, if you want to pay yourself the right salary, if you want to not worry about taxes, that's what you must survive off of or the business must live off. Yeah, I think that's really important. So if you guys followed along, $1,000 had come into the business. And before we were looking at even spending money, we're looking at, well, how much does the business get to keep as profit? How much do we pay ourselves? Hopefully it's something, right? And Mike, I know you're a strong proponent of setting these up and then actually transferring money, which we'll talk on. And then you've got taxes because Uncle Sam wants his piece, of course. And then it's finally time to spend money. And from a personal standpoint, it's your income, right? What flows into your bank account and using the same kind of methodology or thought process, usually you pay yourself first, which I usually talk about 50, 25, 25, 50% to expenses, fixed expenses, 25% to variable, 25% to paying yourself first. Because most physicians have gone through the early parts of their career saving nothing. Early mm. 30s, they're just opening their first accounts and starting to actually pay down 300 plus thousand of debt. You've got to grow the number more than just the normal save 10% of your, your pay. 
And so you've got your pay yourself first, or as Mike's talking about in the business, the profit side, then you've got what you want to pay yourself, which technically is not getting pulled out on your personal side. If you have a W-2, you don't have to save for taxes. That's already been done through your paycheck. But if you're 1099 or you're getting K-1s, whatever it may be, you might need to withhold some tax piece. And then you can finally spend the money. Whereas we're all thinking, well, I make 10K a month. Like, that means I have 10K a month to spend. No, no, no. So think about personal finances as a business. And I think this is really helpful. A lot of emergency medicine really run their own entities that is technically just themselves and maybe their spouse helping them. I know we have lots of people in our community that own their own businesses, their own practices. And I really like this model. So we've got multiple accounts. We've got the system. And as we're setting these things up, what's next if we're walking through that system? Once you have these accounts set up, we would remove the temptation of stealing from ourselves. I learned this very early on. Like I told you, I set this up 13, 12, 13 years ago. The first year, I didn't do such a good job at it because I started putting money toward the profit account, for example. And then the bills started to stack up. I was like, well, I can't pay these bills. I'll just borrow from my profit account. And uh, I have a saying now that if you can't pay your bills, you can't afford your bills. That's the business speaking to me saying something's wrong here. So when I couldn't pay the bills out of my OpEx, there's only two ways to resolve that. Cut unnecessary costs. I believe for many businesses, 10% of costs are easy to cut, sometimes even 20%. You can cut the fat, just don't cut the muscle of the business. Then I think increasing margins, you know, higher sales volume, but also higher margin work brought in more opportunity. But I didn't know that at the point. I said, oh, I don't have money to pay my bills. I'm just going to borrow from the profit account. Well, what I did was I transferred from the profit account and never funded again. So I didn't borrow. I stole from myself and it defeated the system. And so I felt like I had a profit for like a couple of days or a couple of weeks until it was gone. I was like, oh. So what I did was I removed temptation. And you can do this with accounts. You find another bank, a secondary bank, one that you don't want the starter checks or the online banking, ATM card. You want difficult to access. Transfer the profit there. Hide it from you. You can also do it with the taxes. It's very easy to borrow from the tax money before it's due. Don't do that. Hide the money from yourself. When something's out of sight, it is out of mind. Now the only things you see are your owner's compensation the money you live your lifestyle off of. And the only money the business has access to is the OPEX. So it must run off the OPEX. You must live off your owner's comp. And the profit accumulates behind the scenes and the taxes accumulate. When tax time comes done, you go buy, tax is taken care of. Actually, as we're recording this, the next tax quarter is coming up pretty soon. It's the funniest thing, Brian. I get more emails during tax time than anything else. People email me and say, I can't believe how happy I am paying taxes now. The companies reserved the money for me. I sent it in. I didn't have a penny I had to pay out of my own pocket because I hid the money away. And then the other emails I get is every quarter, people are like, it's profit time. I never imagined having this much money available. And the reason I didn't imagine it is because they couldn't see it. It was hidden away, simply accumulating over time. And then they took it out appropriately. When profit comes out, it's always to reward yourself. It's never to go cover an expense you weren't prepared for. You must cut expenses. Profits used to celebrate, to reward the shareholder of a business. So part of me, I get that piece where it's for those who don't want to actually, I think, budget or track spending by the penny or use something like you need a budget is physically moving that money out of sight, out of mind. In YNAB, I get to allocate, which could be deadly. It's just a keystroke, right? $3,000 of profit this month. Oh, uh, wait, my expense kind of grew a little. I moved 500 out and robbing from myself or in theory, Casey and myself, because she's my partner in our business. So there is some kind of like physical barrier between it. And I could totally understand that in the beginning, setting this up, right? Creating the good habits and creating these behavioral kind of boundaries, if you will, to physically set those up. 
YNAB is an excellent system. I actually met with the founder, Jesse Meekum. We had dinner together and we were just talking about the system. Just like product first, the strength is the weakness, right? So the strength is the convenience of YNAB. You carve it all up. The weakness is you're one click away from unwinding the system, right? Eh, I'm not going to call profit this time. Well, profit first is more burdensome. So the weakness is you got to get these accounts set up and transfer money over. And a lot of people say, you know, it just takes too much time to set it up. But the strength is now the inaccessibility of the money. Once the money's transferred, it is hard to get. And when something's out of sight and inaccessible, we start finding better ways to run with what we have. So some people resist the setup. And I'm like, if you just get through it, it will serve you for a lifetime. Yeah, the setup, I don't think is that bad. I personally don't go through the whole setup because I use YNAB and I think I'm fairly stringent on myself and what we do. We don't frivolously spend money and, and things, but it is fascinating to walk through that kind of wake up call of, ooh, like I should allocate for profit. I just assume it's there and probably shouldn't just assume anything in business. It's nice to see that clearly defined. Now, as a business owner, I think a good responsible business owner, we should all have emergency funds. Clearly, Major corporations that get bailouts, they don't have to be apparently good business owners, but us small businesses who don't get bailouts, we need to do that, right? We have people who depend on us. We have employees, we have softwares, we have insurances, we have all sorts of stuff that goes into running a business. Where does the emergency fund piece sit within the profit first model? So what I share with you is I call it the foundational five, those five base accounts, but profit first can be expanded to take care of multiple components. At a more advanced level, we can set up an account. We call it the vault. What we do is we reserve also a percentage of money toward the emergency situations of the business. So say I had 20% going to profit and 20% to owner's comp and 15% to tax. I may adjust those numbers where I have 18% going to profit, 18% to owner's comp and 14% to tax. And now that difference of 5% is going to this vault account or whatever the setup is. But we adjust the percentages. Sometimes... Ideally, you reduce the operating expense to carve more and more away. We always want to push down as much as possible operating expenses because that forces higher efficiency. What I recommend for a business owner is a vault account should have about three months of full operating expenses, your monthly nut, as they call it. So if I'm spending $10,000 a month to keep my business in business, I should have $30,000 reserved in there. The interesting thing about this emergency account is when an emergency strikes, business slows down or something like that. Rarely does business go full stop. I actually almost never see that. There's slowdowns. There's a major client or patient that's lost. But then that 30000 is reserved. We don't need 10000 a month. We went from ten to eight. We only need to subsidize by 2000 each month. So that 30000 would actually last over a year. So if you have three months of full expense reserves, that usually protects a business for an extended period, minimally three months, but sometimes up to a year or more. Yeah, I'm a big fan of being responsible with your finances. And I truly equate how businesses should run their their companies and their forecasting. We do that same concept with our personal finances. So you should have a runway in your personal finances, even if you own a business. You should be thinking ahead. You should be incorporating this profit first model within your own personal finances. And I, again, compare this to paying yourself first. That should be anything that is positively improving your net worth. So if you are saving for a Hawaii vacation, that is not part of your paying yourself first. That is part of your variable expenses that's just delayed till whenever you take that trip or buy the tickets or whatever. But if you've got credit card debt, you're paying the minimums. Well, make an extra $100 payment. That comes as part of your pay yourself first. You're positively improving your net worth. You're decreasing your liability side. So I love the concept. I'm a huge fan of the book. So 
Mike, as we finish out here, tell us maybe a little bit about the book or even other books or other projects that you're working on that people might not know that you have going on. Sure. So I'm on a path to simplify the entrepreneurial journey. PropFirst is one of the systems and mechanisms. I'm actually very proud that we now have over 400,000 companies that have implemented Profit First successfully and driven profit. I've also written books on efficiency or a book called Clockwork about that. Fix This Next is my most recent release and identifying what to work on. Many business owners try to work on everything at once. I'm fixing everything, but nothing's working kind of experience. How do we identify the one thing that needs to be resolved next to move our business forward? All this stuff, any of my books, any of the work I do, I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. You can go to MikeMotorbike.com. You can go to MikeMichalowitz.com, but no one can spell my name. So Mike Motorbike, my nickname from high school, if you go there, all my books are there. There's free chapters, free resources. I have a podcast myself. It's all at MikeMotorbike.com. And I'll make sure that I link that in our community. And those who haven't joined our community, what are you waiting for? There's like 6,000 of us. Come do it. FinancialResidency.com slash community. But I'll make sure that we're linking to uh, Mike's books, his, his links, of course, to this episode in our community. But Mike, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate you. I will continue to, let's call it fanboy over your work. I love it because it's doing good things and it's helping people. Us entrepreneurs, we're a crazy weird bunch that will work 70 hours for ourselves to not work 40 hours for the man, for the corporate man, if you will. You know, you're helping a lot of people potentially create successful, thriving businesses. I know that if physicians are going to be building their practices, they weren't trained in this stuff. And you're making it simple enough that they can understand and actually run a profitable practice. That's why I was thrilled that you'd like to come on. So thank you so much. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, hopefully you guys got some benefit out of hearing from Mike. I think he's a fantastic resource, has a killer book. I highly recommend all of you check it out. It's called Profit First on Amazon. I think you guys will really enjoy it, especially if you own your own practice. Now let's head over to our curbside consults and hear from Joe, who called in all about investment policy statements. Hi, Ryan. It's Joe from Minneapolis. So I wanted to ask you how you view real estate for the purposes of your investment policy statement, as well as your net worth evaluation. Of course, this would only be for my entertainment and information purposes. When I look at my primary residence, while I agree with you that we should consider this an expense, there is equity in the home. So how do I factor this into my balance sheet? Additionally, I own a rental property, which is cash flow positive, but also is building an equity. How do I factor this into my investment policy statement, which has carved out a specific percentage of my portfolio for real estate? I was hoping that you could shed some light on how you approach these subjects. Thanks, man. What's up, Joe? Thanks so much for calling in, man. Really appreciate it. So I take away a couple questions and I'll try to answer them here. The first one is about your personal home. And you asked, how does my personal home, even though I view it as an expense, which I do, it's a money pit for pretty much all of us, but how do you view that on your balance sheet or your net worth statement? So your home is an asset by definition. And let's just say your home is worth $500,000 on the open market. You can go on something like Redfin or Zillow. They're not perfectly accurate, but they're decent. 
enough, unless you're planning on selling your home, then have an agent come in and help you out with giving you what market rates would be. If you want to get really nerdy on it, you can look at price per square foot when you're looking at Redfin and look at everything else that is kind of been selling in your area, come up with a really good estimate. I would highly recommend that let's say that Zillow or Redfin says it's worth half a million dollars. I would immediately deduct out 10% because you're going to have 3% to your agent, 3% to their agent. That's a max. Maybe it ends up being five total, not six. You're going to end up having costs for transfer tax and maybe HOA costs. There's all sorts of little things you're going to have to fix because they're going to hopefully for their own sake. And if all of you are buying houses, please go get an inspection and and do your due diligence. And you're going to have to fix some things up. So I just say take 10% off the top. So that would mean your house is worth 450,000. That's what I would put in the asset side of this. Now let's say that you had 20% down and that's what you have in terms of equity. That would mean you have a note for 400,000 on the books. On the other side of the balance sheet is your liabilities and you're going to write home and 400,000 is a liability because you owe that money. That means that to your overall net worth, you have $50,000 of equity that has positively improved your net worth. Don't fall into the trap of leaving all of that and saying it would have been 100,000. Make sure you take out what it would cost to actually sell that home right now. Your second question was around rental property that has equity and how does that factor into your investment policy statement? So an investment policy statement is extremely different than your balance sheet. The way that you would actually put that on your balance sheet is the exact same way that I just said about your personal home. There's no difference on that piece. But in terms of your investment policy statement, this is a document that you are creating in addition to your financial plan that details out really everything to do with your investments, what you're going to invest in, how you're going to make changes, what that stock bond allocation may look like, what your need and ability to take risk is actually present and how has that changed over time. It'll also detail out your criteria if you want to buy rental real estate like Joe did, how your rental real estate is bought and what it would be considered a good investment versus a bad investment. These things could be anywhere from one to five pages long, depends on how complex your investment policy statement needs to be based on what you want to actually invest in. If you just want to be quote unquote simple and boring, which we love simple and boring in our finances, then it might be one page long that says, hey, I am a moderate investor. I invest like this and I won't make changes more than once a quarter or it'll take once I want to make a change, I'll wait a quarter until implementing the change. You just give yourself some real guidelines and balances. But when it comes to how the equity is treated and what that might do, real estate is pretty illiquid in the sense that it's definitely not completely illiquid like you went and you were a limited partner in a syndication. That's pretty illiquid. You went and you bought a piece of art through one of the online brokers. That's pretty illiquid. But if you buy rental real estate, it's going to take you 45 to 60 days to sell your home in a normal functioning market. In COVID, everything stopped. It was taking a lot longer for people to qualify for mortgages. And there was all sorts of issues. That lead time was maybe upwards of 90 to 100 days. So it's not perfectly liquid, like selling a stock and it's sold instantly and all the money transfers to your bank within five days. The way I would approach this in terms of as the homes are appreciating, and let's say you've given yourself that no more than 10% of your investments are to be in real estate, there's got to be some wiggle room within your investment policy statement that says, if I end up having my real estate worth a little bit more due to market fluctuations, it's got to have a normal band or a tolerance you won't make any trades or won't do anything. Now, 
that might mean that the next property you buy might be pushed out a little longer because you might have to put more money into the equity markets, stocks and bonds, to get that back in track to rebalance that correctly. It's a little math. It's a little bit of fine-tuning it over time. And if you've never done this before, I would highly expect it to be completely out of whack because I would build the investment policy statement in the beginning like you don't have any investments. What would you ideally want to be in? What would that look like? And then you kind of true up and go, oh, okay, now I've laid everything out, my rules. How do I fit my current portfolio in? And then what do I need to make changes for in order to make my portfolio really go along with what I want in my investment policy, how I want my investments to actually work. So hopefully this was helpful. I like these type of questions. If any of you want to call in a question like Joe, please do so going to financialresidency.com slash question. I'd be honored to get it up on the show and answer your question here. Some of you send me emails and I will be honest. I tell you, Hey, that's a great question but please go leave it here by recording this. I don't do that because I don't want to answer your question. I do that because I'm actually a registered investment advisor at our firm, Physician Well Services. I'm regulated by the SEC. And if you're not a client, I can't give you one-on-one advice. But on a podcast, we all know that, like even Joe mentioned, that this is for fun and educational tips and tricks. This is not actual specific advice. And so one on many, when I talk to the podcast, there's literally five, 6,000 of you This isn't specific advice, so I'm able to do that in this setting. If you have questions, instead of emailing me, which we get a lot every week, and I try to follow up with as much as I can, it would be amazing if you guys could go to financialresidency.com slash question, record that voicemail. It's one minute long. You can make it anonymous, and we can have some fun and put it up on the show. All right, let's head over to our financial malpractice segment. I've got on a special guest today, John Apino from Contract Diagnostics. John, welcome on the show. Thank you for having me, sir. That's going to be fun. What financial horror story do you have for us today? All right. So some documents have very clear call expectations. And I know most physicians love being on call. So it's important to have clear call expectations in the agreement. So this one story pertains to an OBGYN physician. Of course, calls different from a pediatrician or a trauma surgeon. So this one happens to do with an OPGYM physician. The gal calls us, we look at her contract. It wasn't clear in the document as far as what the call structure would be. So of course, as we go through the process that we have here and we discuss with her, we say, look, you really need to have this really clear and really defined in the agreement. So make sure that you understand all of their expectations from a schedule perspective, from a location perspective, and of course, from a call perspective. And she said, John, it's one in five. It's a great group. I'm really not too worried about it. Say, okay, great. And then I get an email from her a couple months after she started. And she said, one physician who was older and transitioning out eventually was stepping out of the call pool. She said, another one had become pregnant and was stepping away for a handful of months after I think 12 weeks or 16 weeks that she was going to take for maternity leave. She said, but they were interviewing a physician. They said, oh, don't worry, this person will sign and they'll be here. Well, the interviewed physician ended up declining the position. So she went from one in five to one in three call. And then there was another physician that had a health issue. They had some disease that was under control. And I think that they were losing their battle with it. And so they stepped out of the call pool as well. So call goes from one in five to one in four to one in three to one in two for no B practice. When she brought it up and said, I love the group and I want to help, I want to participate and do whatever I can, my expectations were one in five, and now I'm doing call one and two. Is there any way that I could be paid for this? And they thought about it, and they came to the amount of $180 
per 24-hour call. And she thought that was low. And we agreed with her. And then I think the other person, they came back and called went to one and three. And I think they were hoping that they might be able to find additional people to help out with call. But even one in five is much different than one in three, let alone one in two, especially if you're not going to be paid for it for the most part. 180 bucks, maybe I wouldn't consider that being paid for call if you're on 24-hour OP call. So that's the story. Having call documented in an agreement can be important. Yeah. And not thinking, oh, well, hey, it's one in five. I'm not too worried about it. Go into anything a little more skeptical. And making sure when you're reviewing it, that everything is detailed out. I think that's really, really important. We've seen that a few times with some of our clients that they didn't want to get it reviewed. They didn't review it or they said, oh, that wasn't a big deal to me. But even their goals changed and their things changed that, hey, maybe you're young and you don't care about call and you're happy to put in the hours if you can get compensated. And even if it wasn't 180, even if it was $1,000 a call, right? At some point that money becomes not worth it and you want your time back. Mm-hmm. and there might not be anything in the contract that states it. So I think this is a fascinating story. Unfortunately, I think there's lots of our listeners in our community out there going, yeah, I should have done that. That's a bummer. I never even thought about that. Most contracts that we'll see will say you'll be required to be on call at a reasonable schedule based on the group's decision or pursuant to the practice or fill in the blank. And the group, for the most part, unless it's clear, has unilateral control to set call which is common for an employed situation. That's why when we talk to some of the physicians, we might recommend that they define call quite a bit more. So having call defined, if it's equal, is one in five. If there's four people taking call, it's one in four. If there's two people there, it's one in two. So equal is good, but having it capped is a great thing. So if call's equal, but no more than 10 days a month, 15 days a month, 12 days a month, six days a month, whatever it is, it's great to have excess call approved by the physician and then compensated at a predetermined amount. So they said, oh, we'll pay you in this situation, but it was at an amount that she would rather decline. Having something that's very clear in the agreement, you won't take more than six days of call per month. And if you do, we will get your permission. And if you do agree to it, then we'll pay you at this particular rate. And contracts are for expectations and those expectations should be very clear. Yeah, that's a great comment there. I'd also want to know, what do they deem as reasonable? That word sticks out as like giant red flag of, hey, dig in and what's reasonable to me might not be reasonable to you. So let's identify that because reasonable in a contract that you're going to hold me to is not sounding very fun. We have another horror story we'll bring up in the future about what reasonable might be defined as. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We love partnering with Contract Diagnostics. So if anyone out there needs their contract reviewed, we highly recommend John and his team. You can reach out to them at financialresidency.com slash contract. All right. Well, as we wrap up the show here, it's really fun to do these. I'm such a nerd. I love doing our podcast and putting together the different pieces to the show and the new segments. And we have more cool stuff coming. I always like our community updates here, what we're doing behind the scenes. Because if you've made it this far in the show, You're fantastic. You're amazing. I love you so much because that means you are a real fan of what we're doing at Financial Residency, a fan of the show, a real awesome member of our community. And so I like talking to you guys here about what we're up to. And I think we're going to be adding some new segments onto the show. One talking about news, kind of relevant articles and things that have come out in the past week. I'd really like to highlight more of what you guys are doing and commenting on and engaging with in our community. And so I might be pulling some comments from our community and actually talking about them on air here. We just brought on another life planner at Physician Well Services and she is an MD, but she's also working with us. And so I'm so thrilled to have a physician's perspective inside our company to just really help 
more physicians understand what's so important in their lives and how we can align the money and the behavioral and all this stuff together. And I think we're going to bring her on for some new segments around kind of like the coach's corner. So it's going to be really fun to do that. Loads of good stuff coming. And we're actually going to start live streaming, whether it's the Money Meets Medicine podcast or the Friday financial health assessments that Casey and I do every Friday. We're going to start making some changes. So I'm really excited. We got loads more new content coming to you guys. Thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate you. We honestly probably wouldn't keep doing this if you guys weren't around really liking it and sharing it. And speaking of sharing, please share this with one physician or physician family. Let's help more physicians understand personal finance and feel really comfortable with what they're doing and making sure that they're living life to the fullest and hopefully getting closer to what that ideal life looks like for them. So please, it takes less than a minute to copy the link of the thing and send it to someone who you think this would benefit from. It'd mean the world to me. And I know that adding more people to our community is going to benefit all of us as well because we get to learn about different perspectives. And that's what we like on the show, different perspectives. Last thing before we end, let's give you the link for our sponsor one more time. If you need help reviewing your employment contract before you sign, reach out to a company with great online reviews and a reputation for doing that and so much more. Find Resolve at drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve to get the review process started today. Once again, the link is in the show description. Have a great week and I will catch you guys on Friday. Wyatt, take it away and listen to that important disclaimer. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.